From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Thanks to the great suburban expansion in the United States, over 40 million acres of land in this country is lawn. According to a Princeton University analysis, lawns can function as carbon sinks by soaking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but the heavy carbon cost of maintaining lawns with gas-powered mowers and leaf blowers and synthetic fertilizers, cancels out any potential benefit. Doug Tallamy, a well-known entomologist and conservationist, writes, each weekend we mow an area the size of New England to within one inch and then congratulate ourselves on a job well done. But what is the job we're doing? Do you understand the effect of those non-native ornamental plants that you or your landscape designer plunked into the ground? According to multiple studies, they are contributing to the loss of biodiversity. Caring about the robustness of pollinators, showing interest in the local population of butterflies, is not an abstraction popular only among the graying, Birkenstock-wearing, Subaru-outback-driving, muesli-eating NPR listener base. Supporting biodiversity by installing native trees, shrubs, and other plants means you are directly supporting the systems on which human life depends. Yes, human life. Today, we'll explore native plants, what they are in southeastern North Carolina, the impact they have on climate change and biodiversity, and how to put more of them in your environment. Joining me now, Lloyd Singleton. He is director of the North Carolina Cooperative Extension, New Hanover County Center at the Arboretum. Lloyd Singleton, welcome to Coastline. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you with us. Amy Mead is an area natural resource agent with the North Carolina Cooperative Extension, covering Brunswick, Pender, and New Hanover counties. As a plant biologist, she's specifically focused on water quality, especially ponds and stormwater management issues. Amy Mead, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for being with us. One note. The Native Plant Festival with educational opportunities and speakers takes place September 17th at the Arboretum. To find a list of native plant sellers, visit our website at whqr.org. There you'll also find registration details for a webinar with Doug Tallamy. First, Lloyd Singleton, help us understand why our own front and backyards really mean anything in the climate change scheme of things. So many folks who have yards in southeastern North Carolina are looking at, you know, a fraction of an acre. Well, I think it's uh, important to have soil covered with plants, but there are plants that are actually going to be more uh, beneficial to supporting pollinators, for example, wildlife, other than lawn grasses. So, what someone can do in a small yard can have an impact anyway. So uh, turf grass is pretty, but it doesn't serve a whole lot of other ecological functions. And the idea is to be, be able to introduce some other native plants into a landscape and then help support our natural wildlife. Amy Mead, some of us who are, are lay people may have kind of a peripheral understanding of pollinators and bugs being important. But not really understanding what that means in terms of of losing certain bugs actually meaning we're losing 
species, other species, and, and contributing to the loss of biodiversity. How does that work from the perspective of somebody's backyard in Brunswick or New Hanover mm-hmm. or Pender County? I think for a long time we've thought about insects and we think, oh, there's a pest, you know. But um, <clears throat> when we're talking about caterpillars and other insects, you know, there, there are so many beneficial insects and there needs to be that balance in the ecosystem. So, you know, we ta- we're talking about native plants today. Those native plants form the basis of the food chain. Um, so, you know, the plants are they take that energy from the sun. They convert that to plant tissue. Caterpillars are eating that plant tissue. Then birds are looking for those caterpillars to feed their young. You know, that, that these plants, they're part of that whole ecosystem. And the insects form a real strong basis of the food chain. Um, you know, then we have pollinators. You know, if you love having vegetables in your backyard, you need those pollinators to be able to pollinate those tomatoes. And so if there aren't, um, you know, food sources for them, pollen, nectar, um, then we're not going to be able to have those uh, those vegetables, uh, uh, you know, after that. So these, you know, the insects are so important, uh, and we really need to realize that they're important for us as humans as well. So when I think about uh, insects coming to plants, I think, I just think about my own backyard and how I've watched the insect population change, like the kinds of insects that are coming have changed over the last few years since more parts of the county have been developed. And when we're seeing things like an, I don't, I shouldn't call it an invasion, maybe they're good. Um, Assassin bugs is not the scientific term, but we're seeing those a lot now in Brunswick County. And I don't remember seeing those before. Amy Mead. Well, we can we certainly can see a shift with the insects that we have based upon the plants that are in our garden. You know, so if we are planting, uh, you know, more plants that might, you know, draw certain insects to them, um, or if we have a lot of pests that are there, we might see these. And you know, like an assassin bug would be something that would be a predator to other things that are eating your plants and things like that. So these can be beneficial insects as well. Um, you know, but the you know, when we have, we'll talk about this probably more today, but when we have native plants, these are often very specific host plants for um, for our native insects. So when we change that, when we plant almost all natives, uh, non-native plants, then we'll see a change in the species that we are seeing in our yard. And so we might, we might get um, different invasive insects coming in um, that are going to be drawn by those non-native plants, and we'll lose that diversity of native insects in our yards when we aren't planting that basis of native plants. What are some examples of invasive insects that we've started to see in this region? One that pops into mind is, uh, and not that it's a negative invasive, is the the Joro spider. We've seen that come in. That's some of the big spiders that you see. Come, there's several different, you know, orb weaver spiders, but this is certainly one that has come in. That I, Mark, do you, or Lloyd, do you know? Is it an Asian spider? I think. I'm not sure, but the spotted lanternfly is in North Carolina oh, now. It's a very devastating ones, yeah. insect, and it's here because of a um, tree of heaven is a host, which is an invasive tree species. So if we can actually get rid of the invasive tree species, we won't be as attractive to the spotted lanternfly, which is a very devastating insect to a lot of uh, crops in uh, areas north of here. So it's been found in North Carolina. It's not in our county yet, but we're on the lookout for it. 
What is the tree of heaven? Is that something that landscapers are planting, or is that just how did that get here? Not anymore, but it was planted for a while, and then it escapes cultivation and then reseeds itself very, very easily. Thousands and thousands of seeds are born by the um, tree of heaven, so it's a, it's a bad one. You know, when we talk about native versus non-native, how, how do we define that? Because I've heard other biologists say things like a, an ecosystem has ebbs and flows and it changes subtly. And, you know, there was a time when maybe foxes were not considered native to southeastern North Carolina, but then maybe some English people brought that. I, I don't know for sure that they did. Uh, and now they are part of what we consider to be the fauna of southeastern North Carolina. So, Lloyd Singleton, how do you define a native plant? Can't, can't the bugs just adjust and eat what they have? Well, there can be some of that, but I think the definition that's most commonly accepted is plants that were here before European settlers. So if those were the ones that we are considering native, then we know they've evolved through that time period and are going to be well-suited for the future here, too. What is the time period? I mean, how did we land on when the before the European settlers arrived, Amy Mead, or Lloyd? So we, we generally like to say that these plants came here without human intervention. So the, we're talking about thousands of years' time span. So these plants have had this time span to evolve and adapt to our particular climate, our particular soil. Um, and crucially, you know, we'll keep bringing this back to insects, but they co-evolve with these insects. And so many of them form this really highly interdependent relationship. So we can think about monarch butterflies. They are absolutely dependent on milkweed species for their reproduction. So they must lay their eggs on milkweed species to uh, their caterpillars eat the leaves and then they metamorphose into butterflies. But so that's a that's a really great easy example of that interdependent relationship between native plants and insects. So you're saying it takes literally thousands of years mm -hmm. for the insect population to evolve to be able to deal with the plants in front of it. Yes. And so, you know, when we plant non-native plants, and, and to be clear, not all non-native plants are, you know, they don't, there's no white hats and black hats or, you know, unless we're talking about invasive plants. So there are some that are perfectly well behaved, but they, uh, you know, the insects that we have often lack the ability to overcome those uh, non-native plants' chemical defenses, so they can't eat it. So for a long time in the landscape trade, that was great. We've planted something that nothing can eat, but now we're realizing we've planted something that nothing can eat, you know, so it doesn't serve a function other than to be aesthetically beautiful. So we've planted it for us, but it's not serving a, pur a purpose in the ecosystem. So is it comparable to putting a plastic piece of uh, plastic fruit bowl outside. I mean, it's it's not feeding anything. It's not feeding so. anything. And, you know, and, you know, they can, uh, non-native plants can serve, you know, they can they be, uh, you know, have uh, nectar or pollen, so they can serve that purpose. You know, if they, we have trees, they certainly are providing um, some services with stormwater and, you know, um, erosion control and things like that. But but in terms of that ecosystem, the uh, the food web, they're really, it, it, you've just made a desert. So if you have a yard where you just have boxwoods and turf and crepe myrtles, you've essentially created a food desert for insects and wildlife. A food desert for insects and wildlife. And Lloyd Singleton, when we come back from this break, I want to talk to you about um, some of those life support systems that Doug Tallamy is referring to. Okay. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at the 
surprising loss of biodiversity and urban landscapes and what you can do to slow that loss. When we come back from this short break, we'll also hear about some of the native plants that will create a habitat for pollinators. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. If 40 million acres of land in the U.S. is basically turf grass, what would happen if that land slowly converted into habitat supporting a local ecosystem? We're exploring that question today with Lloyd Singleton, director of the North Carolina Cooperative Extension at the New Hanover County Arboretum. Amy Mead is an area natural resource agent with the Cooperative Extension covering Brunswick, New Hanover, and Pender counties. The Native Plant Festival, with educational opportunities and speakers, takes place September 17th at the Arboretum. To find a list of native plant sellers, visit our website at whqr.org. There you'll also find registration details for a webinar with Doug Tallamy. Lloyd Singleton when Doug Tallamy, this uh, very well-known conservationist and entomologist, talks about uh, biodiversity losses being this clear sign that our life support systems are failing, what, what life support systems is he talking about? Because he's talking about human life. I mean, he's tying this loss directly to us. He is. Well, I think if we look at the... Um role of plants in human life. They produce oxygen, they sequester carbon, they keep soil in place. And then also the fact that they are the food and the habitat for our wildlife, the wildlife that was here before we were. So it's important to know that, that these plants play a role in supporting our life. And I think we've too often looked at plants as just for their aesthetic value. And there are plenty of beautiful plants that are very well adapted here. And those ought to be the ones that we start to promote and use in our landscapes, in my opinion. It's interesting that you say it that way because you actually sent me an article that said we should be asking ourselves a different question when we decide on which plants to put in our yards. Instead of asking, will this grow in our area? And what will it look like? Will it be pretty? We should be asking will it feed the local ecosystem? That is a kind of a different thought. It is, yeah. I think it's a different perspective, and it's really more, it's less selfish of us as a human species that we are part of a larger ecosystem, and so we can be respectful of that and try to support the habitat for other wildlife that were here before we were. Plant biologist Amy Mead, we've talked about invasive species so far. We've talked about native and non-native species are invasive, can native species be invasive? Is that possible? What do we mean when we say invasive species? That's a great question because uh, some people get really confused by this. So, you know, a native plant is a plant that's evolved naturally here without human er interference. A non-native plant is a plant that has been brought here, cultivated, uh, you know, by humans. 
Um, so that non-native plant can't ever become native. Um, a plant can become naturalized. That means it's been here for a really long time. It's well adapted. It's, it doesn't misbehave too much. A great example that, of a plant that people think of as native is um, Gallardia, which is also called blanket flower. We see that on the beaches, a beautiful red, yellow flower um, that grows amazingly well in the sand, pure sand. Um, but that's actually, um, you know, not a native plant, but it is naturalized in our area, and it grows really well here. Now, an invasive plant is specifically a non-native plant that displaces other uh, native plants. So it's coming into the ecosystem, and it's um, pushing out native species and creating monocultures. Um, Lloyd mentioned tree of heaven. We see Chinese tallow trees that grow up in the hedgerows. Um, a mimosa tree that is a, such a beautiful tree, but it, it seeds itself very well and it outcompetes um, local vegetation. So that would be an, ex an example of an invasive plant or an invasive non-native. So sometimes I, I'll hear people say, oh, that native plant, that's, that's invas that, it's invasive, it takes over. So a native plant can't be invasive. It simply is growing in the habitat to which it is well-suited. Um, we, we sometimes use the word aggressive or opportunistic, um, <laughs> misbehaving, you know. But, uh, but mountain mint is one of my absolute favorite pollinator plants. This is uh, a plant that is, you'll see the most diversity of bees and wasps on this plant, uh, but it, it will grow very aggressively. And so I, I tend to grow it in an area where I don't mind it to grow aggressively or uh, it's bounded by, you know, something else that it can only grow into a certain space. So, so, so do I, you call that a native plant, mountain is, mint? Yeah, absolutely. A native plant, wonderful native uh, pollinator plant here, but it is a, a busy you know, it, it does. Uh, so it's hard to contain. Yeah. So once you plant the mountain mint in yeah. the ground, it's gonna it's gonna take in the, over that space. But it, it's one of my favorite plants, though. So I don't mind that. A lot of mints are aggressive like that, though. So. I want to talk about oak trees in a moment, but first, you, both of you mentioned growing vegetables in the bed. Like some people like to do that. Is does growing vegetables that wouldn't necessarily be, I mean, are any vegetables native plants here? And are you attracting new bugs to the ecosystem with different breeds of, say, tomato plant or eggplant or vegetables that wouldn't normally be grown here? I what? don't think you're necessarily attracting any new species of insects. There may be some that are going to attack that, but if you have your system in balance, there's going to be predators of those insects that do like your vegetable plants. But the thing to keep in mind is native plants are here to feed our wildlife. Vegetable plants are here to feed us. So I think they deserve a spot in our landscape. It really makes sense to use our limited land uh, and water for that purpose as well. So oak trees are one of Doug Tallamy's favorite plants. He has this effort, um, and Lloyd, you can probably tell us about it. You're also the tree guy. So um, explain to us what Doug Tallamy is hoping more and more people will do, not only with oak trees as a step, but in their own backyards. Well, I think if you're going to select a tree for landscape, you need to look at native species first. You need to see if there's some that are well-suited to the site, do they have the right amount of space? Do they have the proper soil and water conditions? And then if they do, let's find a native species that's going to fill the bill instead of resorting to an introduced species such as a zelkova or a crepe myrtle. 
Uh, for instance, crepe myrtles are just planted way too much here. We don't need any more crepe myrtles. However, an oak tree, a live oak, for instance, if you have room for a live oak, let's pick a live oak and do that. It's a keystone species, according to Dr. Talamy, and that's because it supports hundreds and hundreds of different insect species. It's both food and habitat. So I think we can make a good decision on a tree selection by looking at native species first that are available. And one of the other elements about having turf grass, like maintaining what we think of as a traditional lawn that I found interesting, is that any potential carbon-absorbing benefit is canceled out by the use of gas-powered tools to to keep that lawn manicured, but also nitrogen fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer. Can you talk a little bit about synthetic fertilizer and what that does to the atmosphere? Because this isn't just about runoff, even though that's part of it. Right. Well, synthetic fertilizers are made from petroleum, so you have an extraction there going on anyway. And then most landscape equipment is gas-powered, and so that's also using um, petroleum and then contributing to uh, our uh, global warming in a way. So I think the idea is to have an option that doesn't contribute to that and just does sequester carbon and provide habitat instead. If you can get rid of some of your lawn, I'm not against turf grass necessarily, but we need to have less area of turf grass so we can have more habitat for our pollinators. Amy Mead, what is the relationship between stormwater management and native plants? We hear the term stormwater management so much, especially among uh, local government officials, because it's an issue in a place that has lots of rain and hurricanes. So how can we do our part as individual property owners? Great question. So when we're talking about stormwater, we're talking about water that's uh, you know, rainfall that's coming down, and it's flowing over impervious surfaces. So that's things like roadways and rooftops and driveways. And as it flows over those surfaces, it's picking up um, petroleum products. It's picking up excess uh, nitrogen, and fertil- you know, nitrogen and phosphorus from fertilizer. It's carrying them into our waterways um, where it can uh, cause, you know, algal blooms, uh, high accounts of bacteria. So we have lots of creeks in our um, in our area that are closed to shellfishing. I wouldn't go swim in them because they have these really high levels of fecal coliform bacteria. So anything that we can do on our property, and this is a really important uh, way to think about our yards too, again, that um, function over aesthetic. If we can keep that stormwater on our property, allow it to slow down, spread out, and soak down into the into the ground, we can keep that water from going into our waterways. And the role that native plants play in that is, uh, you know, um, and turf, turf does a good job, you know, can slow water down, and especially it's much better than bare earth where we might have erosion happening. But native plants are going to have really deep roots that are going to hold down uh, deep into the soil. They're going to hold that soil in place. They're going to help take up um, nutrients and water. Um, they're also going to require less inputs of water and fertilizer. So, uh, you know, we're not going to have to fertilize these areas as much as this, you know, fertilizer-hungry turf would need. Um, and so, you know, 
you know, I like having an area in my backyard where it's, tur- you know, turf. My husband loves mowing. Um, but, you know, I always tell people, think of it in a positive way. Rather than saying, reduce the size of your lawn, I always say, increase the size of your garden beds. So, <laughs> you know, just keep um, keep expanding your garden beds, adding more plants, and really just keep thinking about how your yard functions um, rather than just how it looks. But you can also make it look very tidy and, you know, have it landscape beautifully with native plants as well. We see retention ponds everywhere in some of these suburban developments that keep springing up and expanding. And um, there's there's one retention pond I've seen that over the last several years has just grown its population of water lilies, I think they are. And I thought water lilies were a sign of a healthy body of water. This is becoming so that almost the entire mm-hmm. surface of the pond now is covered with water lilies. What what does that tell us about what's happening there, Amy Mead? So water lilies are, are actually a native aquatic plant, um, but they can, uh, just like any other aquatic weed, they can overgrow. And probably if I was going to look at this pond, what I would say is it's gotten quite shallow. So if you're seeing an overgrowth of uh, you know water lilies in your pond, um, it, it's not a good thing. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. Retention ponds or stormwater ponds have become the main stormwater control measure in our new developments. So when you build a new development, um, you know, you're required by your permit to um, hold that stormwater and treat it for, um, for the size of the land that you're covering. Um, so it, it's in our best interest to make sure that these are really healthy. And one way that we can do that, and I, I go and talk to folks all the time, is adding um, buffer uh, buffer areas around the stormwater ponds and adding native plants. Um, those plants are going to filter water as it's entering these stormwater ponds. It's going to filter sediment, um, filter nutrients, and help take up those nutrients and also help with erosion. So over the long run, adding those native plant buffers, and I'm talking like a three-foot at, at bare minimum no-mow zone, so you don't mow down straight to the water's edge. Um, but if you can add beautiful native plants, it can be aesthetically beautiful, it can be functional, um, and then it can also help take up those nutrients. That way, if we do have a stormwater overflow, it's not sending nutrient-rich water out into our waterways. What are some examples of native plants you would, you would put as a buffer around those retention ponds? Um, so same plants that you would see growing in, you know, a ditch on the side of the road, but their uh, pickerel weed is always one of my favorite ones. It's got a beautiful arrow-shaped leaf and a, with a purple flower, so it always makes people happy. Um, there's bulltongue arrowhead, which also has a, a really neat-shaped leaf, and then white flowers. Both of those are really attractive uh, pollinators. Um, rushes do beautifully. They spread very well. Um, so, uh, you know, you just want to make sure that you keep those uh, ponds in balance. Um, and then, uh, you know, a buffer will, will help with that a lot and help with your maintenance costs in the long run. Lloyd Singleton, when we clear for development in, in so many situations, we watch uh, all of the vegetation just taken out down to the last stick, including whatever have been the canopy trees. And um, I guess the the line from the developers, which is reasonable, is it's so much easier to just take everything out and then replant. Do you think that there is room to modify that strategy? Or should we just be looking at the kinds of trees we're putting back in? 
What, what's the way forward here? Well, I think the tree inventory of the uh, lot should be done first where you're identifying some of the key species. If there are live oaks, particularly that are mature, they're worth saving and protecting. And if we can design around them and protect them, that's worth doing. I think our uh, development codes actually begin to incentivize that now, too. There have been some changes in recent years that do give some protections to some of the more important trees. If there are a lot of mimosa and Chinese tallow, take them away, you know, get rid of that, and then let's put back better species of trees in that. So I think looking at what's there and then making a judgment call is a good idea for any development. What mistakes are people making when it comes to maintenance of the trees they actually have on their property? Oh, my goodness. I guess my biggest pet peeve is the over-mulching. If you see mulch mounded up around the trunk of a tree, it's going to kill the tree, particularly a young one. And there should never be mulch up to the stem of the tree, the trunk. You need to see a flare. The trunk flares at the base where it becomes the root. That needs to be visible at all times. So that's one of the big problems. Then the other one is replant. Free the flare campaign. Free the flare, yes. (laughs) I love it. And then um, lack of water. If, If the tree doesn't get maintained for the first couple of years with regular waterings, it's probably not going to make it through, say, May. If we have a a month of heat with no rain, and that tree was new, planted in December or so, it's not going to survive. So we really do have to be serious about caring for the trees the first couple of years at least. If people wanted to start planting live oaks in their backyards, what's the best way to do that? Can you? <laughs> is it realistic to stick an acorn in the ground, or do you really need to find a seedling and, and plant at the right time? What, what advice would you give people as we talk about this in August, but we're looking forward at the September-October planting season? Right. I'd say October is even better than September, and November, December is getting really good. December, January, and February would be my favorite months to plant. And I think uh, there's a lot of good live oaks out there. There are a number of growers here that do grow them. Uh, Some even grow from acorns that have been harvested from some of the, the wonderful oaks in the area, too. So they're hybridized from nature to be well-suited here. So there are good opportunities. And I do recommend getting a containerized plant that has grown well. It's just a lot easier than waiting on an acorn. Right. What about, there? there is this huge old tree. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on Poplar Grove plantation land or it's the the public park that's next to it, but it's right there. An Osage orange tree? Do you know what that is? And it it looks like a tree that's quite old, long in the tooth, if you can say that about trees. We're anthropomorphizing them today. But, yeah, is that native? I've definitely heard of an Osage orange, but I, I can't remember if it's native or not. I don't think that I it think is. I think no, yeah. I would say no. Yeah. As much as we wish we could grow citrus here, maybe one day. <laughs> so what are, we've talked a little bit about uh, tree of heaven and mimosa trees, crepe myrtles, which, you know, many people move here from other places and assume those are native well, trees. so many of them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the other non-natives that might surprise people? Do we consider 
the azalea bush a native plant at this point? No. No. You know, interesting, a lot lot of the plants that we think of as, you know, camellias, we're a camellia city, and I I love camellias. I have several of them. Uh, But a lot of the plants that that do well here are actually from Asia, but just from a similar latitude. So camellias, azaleas, you know, these are all non-natives that that we love, but uh, maybe we could choose some other things too. But they're functionally and ornamental. They are just for our pleasure, you know. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of native versus non-native plants with two experts from the North Carolina Cooperative Extension. After this short break, we'll have more with Amy Mead and Lloyd Singleton. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Conservationist Doug Tallamy insists we are at risk of losing so many species from local ecosystems that, quote, their ability to produce the oxygen, clean water, flood control, pollination, pest control, carbon storage, etc., that is, the ecosystem services that sustain us, will become seriously compromised, end quote. Here to help us understand the contribution that we can all make to fostering biodiversity is Amy Mead. She's an area natural resource agent for the North Carolina Cooperative Extension in Brunswick, New Hanover, and Pender Counties. Lloyd Singleton is director of the North Carolina Cooperative Extension New Hanover County Center at the Arboretum. The Native Plant Festival, with educational opportunities and speakers, takes place September 17th at the Arboretum. To find a list of native plant sellers, visit our website at whqr.org. There you'll also find registration details for a webinar with Doug Tallamy. Lloyd Singleton, this issue of clear-cutting, you said earlier in the program that we're starting to see some changes in tree policy with the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County. I don't think that's so in Brunswick County. We still see, as new tracts become open to development, just complete clear-cutting, leaving not a shred of vegetation in the ground. And then what's left gets thrown into a giant pile and burned. What is this something that citizens need to work on changing? I mean, what are the politics of this? Why has this been such an intractable issue as we learn more about why it's important? It's not just a pretty thing. It's it's I mean, we're harming ourselves, but this policy isn't changing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if people were to realize the value of the mature tree and recognize it's going to take 50, 100 years to get that ecosystem service back from a new tree you plant. It's not just a one-for-one thing. A mature established tree is going to be much more resilient in um, storms, and it's going to already do a lot of carbon sequestration. I mean, plenty of benefit. The other thing I hope developers will begin to realize is you can actually increase the value of that development 
if you have a mature tree canopy. So I think there's politics, but I think there's money involved too. And at some point we'll realize it really isn't cheaper just to bulldoze everything and try to grow it back. We can do a little bit better planning and save some of the, the special tree species on a, on a piece of land. And, you know, we do have information on our website about the Native Plant Festival and, and Native Plant Cellars that, that are participating that day. But, Amy Mead, has it been hard to get developers to shift? I mean, why is this something that we have to push in the first place? Why did people go in a non-Native direction so ubiquitously in the first place? I think it was easier, you know, because, uh, you know, when you're, when you're landscaping an entire development, it's easy to pull from the sort of development starter package. You know, you've got our, our ubiquitous crepe myrtles, um, you have lower petalums, uh, you know, all of these plants that are easy to grow in bulk. The, the nurseries have bulk. They, you know, that's the demand, so that's what they grow. Um, so it's just easy to reach for this palette. But, you know, when we see this, we're, we're talking so much about diversity. Um, we see these monocultures, you know, hedges of, of laurel petalum, hedges of boxwoods, uh, you know, all – we cut down uh, massive canopy trees and then we replant small ornamental trees like crepe myrtle. So we lose those services. We lose biodiversity. So, But, I, you know, I do see glimmers of hope. Uh, you know, uh, there's a new development on oleander. And I was delighted to see that they replanted trees. Well, it used to actually just be a giant parking lot, so anything was better than that. <laughs> but um, they replanted Schumard oaks, which is a smaller oak species that has a beautiful fall color. Um, they replanted um, bald cypress. Um, they, they saved areas of um, loblolly pines. Um, they planted, uh, you know, native shrubs like... Uh, dwarf yalpana hollies. So I do, I, I am encouraged. Um, and then in Brunswick County, there are several uh, different developments that have made amenities out of um, saving wildlife areas so that their residents can have wildlife trails. And, you know, uh, one of the great benefits of, of uh, green things is our, it, its effect on us, too. So having those forests um, is going to help our health as well, not not just for their ecosystem services, but for the just the calm and beauty that we get when we walk through. And so if people started buying native plants or requesting them from landscapers, mm-hmm. not just around the when it's time for the native plant festival yeah, and sale, yeah. but but all year round, and that became more the mo here. What kinds of things would they be requesting? Let's Let's start with the trees. We've talked a lot about Mm -hmm. oak trees, but what are some of the trees that people really will be able to find at the Native Plant Festival from sellers and and trees that should be going in backyards? There are going to be a lot of different oak species that are native that are well adapted, both red oak and white oak families. Then there's several other types of um, native trees that I think maybe are not as available as they should be. A favorite of mine is Carpinus carolinia, and it's actually called ironwood for a reason, because it's so tough. Haven't seen any ironwood even lose a branch in a hurricane. I mean, there's some real benefits to these tree species that are uh, evolved in our area. 
Amy, do you have any favorites? Yeah, I uh, my favorite tree right now is the Sweet Bay Magnolia. So this is a tree that I will recommend to people if they they have a small space, maybe they don't have too much height, maybe it's you know, uh, or they need a narrower crown. A Sweet Bay Magnolia is beautiful. It is it is a magnolia in the magnolia genus, but it has smaller leaves and. Um, it is semi-evergreen, so it won't lose its leaves too often. And it has smaller white and fragrant flowers. But again, you know, we just want to keep hitting that, the, you know, these native trees are the, you know, host plants for so many insects. So the Sweet Bay Magnolia is the host plant for the eastern tiger swallowtail. So these big, flashy, black and yellow butterflies. So this is the plant that that butterfly is going to be looking for to lay its eggs. Um, it also uses uh, Carolina cherry laurels, so cherry species. That's actually a, a tree that a will tree. pop up in your hedgerow, the Carolina cherry laurel. And uh, the, the cherry laurels, just to me, like, is a perfect tree. It is a host plant for many different species of moths and butterflies. Um, and then it has it's loaded with flowers in early in the spring when those pollinators are looking for those early sources of nectar and pollen, and that's followed by fruits that the birds adore. So you just get this you know total complete package, and that's uh, you know emblematic of a lot of the native plants that we need in our ecosystems. What are some of the fauna that we should be seeing in a healthy ecosystem in a suburbanized landscape? Is that, I mean, are there indicate? can you look at the animal population or lack thereof and see it as a marker of a healthy or unhealthy ecosystem? I think birds certainly are a good indicator of our ecosystem. You know, we keep talking about how these keystone, especially tree species, um, you know, we're talking about oak trees, oak oak tree, oak species um, support over 500 species of moss and butterflies. So that means lots of caterpillars. I just started reading a great book um, called The Arbor Knot. It's this great tree biologist, and she says, half of all terrestrial life is up in the canopy. We just can't see so much going on up there. Half of all terrestrial life is in the tree canopy. canopy. Mm. So much going on up there. But the birds are looking for these caterpillars to feed their young. Even if these birds are seed eaters as adults, 96% 96% of birds rear their young on insects. So a chickadee, a chickadee, you know, mommy and daddy need to go find over 500 insects to raise one clutch of eggs. So, you know, to raise those to maturity because they need that, that source of protein uh, to raise those baby birds. So they're going to be looking for these insects and we need to have um, those plants that are going to be able to support those insects. Before we move on to bushes, (laughs) I need to ask a really dumb question, so I apologize in advance. But um, looking at the longleaf pine Mm -hmm. where, you know, we see that uh, there are efforts to grow it in Carolina Beach State Park and other parks around the region. We understand how important they are to the ecosystem, how long they take to grow, but is it realistic to try to stick one in your backyard and hope it grows? I think people should never be afraid to plant pines. I think they've gotten a little bit of a bad rep. We have a lot of loblolly pines, and those are native pines as well. But I think that we, you know, people have lost pines in hurricanes, and so they're very afraid to replant pines. But um, I think they shouldn't be. Pines also are host plants for, uh, you know, different different insects as well. Um, and the longleaf pine is uh, the home for the red cockaded woodpecker, which is a, a really threatened bird here in our region. So I don't think they should be afraid to plant them. I do think that pines do better in groupings. 
So a lone pine by itself might be more susceptible to um, to hurricanes or strong winds. Uh, so they do better in groupsing, groupings of maybe three or five. Um, but I don't think we should be afraid. I think they're beautiful, and I think that they are such a symbol of our our coastal plain. That this, you know, it used to be all longleaf pine, you know, for all the way from you know Georgia all the way up the coast, and so we've lost so much of that habitat. And uh, you know, so uh, you know, I always tell people if you want to know what grows well here, look out your window, look out into the the you know into the forest. What's growing there? Is it red cedars? Is it uh, you know, wax myrtles, it is, is it oaks? That's what wants to grow here. It's going to do really well. So, you know, plant some longleaf pine. Don't be afraid. And I, I, as for oaks, I always say, plant a live oak, plant a legacy. So don't be afraid to plant these big trees. <laughs> what about uh Bushes. If we're if we're moving away from the idea of azalea bushes because those are non-native bushes, what should we be installing? Well, if you want a lot of flowering plants, you may not have as much beautiful flowering that you get with an azalea. So that's one of the things you need to be willing to change your aesthetic. And a favorite author of mine, Benjamin Vogt, says rethink pretty. You know, just what is pretty? Is it pretty because it's supporting ecosystems or is it pretty because it has a few flowers in the spring? So um, I'm a big fan of inkberry. Um, It's a nice, just green, beautiful, dense shrub. It'd be a great replacement for something like boxwood. Also the Ilex shilling, the dwarf... um, um, Yopan holly. Yopan holly, Mm -hmm. thank you, is a great shrub. And then... Um, there are some azaleas that actually are native here. Now, they're not going to be as abundant in the flower, and they're typically an orange or a yellow flower in spring, too. How about you, Amy? Um, I, you know, I would definitely uh, encourage you guys to plant a diversity of plants, too. So rethink this, you know, monolith hedge. So uh, one, one downside to planting the same plant all next to each other is if one of them gets a disease, you may lose the whole the whole shrub. So we're really encouraging people to plant a diversity of plants. So things like thinkberry that you mentioned, but beautyberry is beautiful. Um, that is a deciduous shrub. So you could plant some things that are evergreen like inkberry and then beautyberry, which is going to have this beautiful purple berry along the stem in the fall. We're just about ready to get a big show from them. And then something else like um, dwarf palmettos to give some cool texture. Um, those are also going to be evergreen. Virginia sweet spire will have um, a great um, uh, white spires of flowers in the spring. So there's a, just a great variety of plants. And don't be afraid to, you know, mix and match things. Uh, okay, we're, we're moving away from this Victorian aesthetic of, you know, we don't need to look like Versailles here in our yards. We can have, <laughs> you know, and Lloyd always has it. I love your saying. It's like messy landscapes and tidy packages or something like that. It's um, messy ecosystems and orderly frames. There you go. Wow. If you you have an orderly frame around a messy ecosystem, it seems to be more tolerable by humans. So you might even get your HOA to agree to it. Okay. Tricky little move there. Mm -hmm. So talking about HOAs, can you mimic turf grass with weeds and fool the HOA if you (laughs) mow the green weeds? You can, but there's also native species that could be ground cover. Now, they're not going to be quite as tolerant of foot traffic, Mm -hmm. but they would have that same low aesthetic and things that you could keep cut very low or even they grow naturally low. Green and gold 
is mm-hmm. a good one. Beautiful. Phylonotiflora, which is also called fog fruit and frog, frog fruit. fruit. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's a great <laughs> Lots one. Lots of names. Yep. Yep. Um, so there's options that you can use to create a lawn look without having to have a turf grass, particularly a monoculture of turf. But yeah, if you have a mix of weeds and want to keep it mowed, I'd say go for it. Okay. Well, we're going to post some of those ideas on our website under the resources section. Are HOAs starting to change their attitudes? Is that an area, a political area that we're seeing any movement in, Amy Mead? I think so. Uh, you know, I uh, I think that we have an opportunity now because a lot of the a lot of HOAs are are have been around thirty years or more, and so a lot of them have bylaws that were written when we thought differently about this subject, and so maybe they have codified a lot of things in their bylaws that really might need a revisit. Um, so I would encourage people to join their HOA landscaping committee if they have ideas. Um, and to try and, you know, change people's minds a little bit. Have, you know, call us up. We'll come speak and we'll, we'll uh, talk to people about the benefits of this. And, um, you know, I think that you can, and I don't, I don't think that you need to throw everything out, you know. You don't need to go in and take your whole yard and throw it out. Uh, but you can just add over the, over the years, increase the size of your garden beds. You know, you can enjoy those ornamentals, but have a good basis, you know, uh, of native plants. So, like in my yard, I have I have uh, camellias. I love them. I love a Japanese maple, but I also have, um, you know, I have pawpaws and Chickasaw plum, and I have my sweet bay magnolia, and I have persimmon, and so I've added these trees over the year, and I have beautiful live oaks. So, you know, you can have these ornamentals and enjoy them, but also have a basis of native plants. And that is this edition of Coastline Lloyd Singleton, Amy Mead. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineers. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue this conversation with us on Facebook. We'd love to hear what you think. You can find the episode and all of the resources at whqr.org. Find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.